Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Father, that this would not just be another Sunday that we would uh, just come and listen and then go away without us being changed by your word that is sung and your word that is taught. I pray, Father, that right now that there would be receptive hearts to the truth of your word. And we pray that as we open up to Mark 11, Lord, that you would open it up to our hearts. Help us to not just go through motions, but Lord, I pray, Father, that your spirit would have freedom to work in our midst. I pray, Father, that the, this person that is presenting, that would, he would be out of the way. But we pray, Father, that your spirit very clearly would be the one who is teaching us through your word. And so, Lord, we're asking that your name would be exalted above all things. And it would be exalted because our lives are changed by the gospel. That our, our lives are changed by what your word has to, to share with us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use this time for your, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. The scene is a bloodied man who is marred beyond recognition. His face had been beaten. His beard had been pulled out. And then there was a crown of thorns that was placed upon his skull. The skin on his back, in a sense, was filleted off because of the scourging that took place. A Roman whip, leather whip that had embedded tassels of, of, of metal in the thongs. And as it came across his backside 39 times, it ripped open the flesh. And then they put a robe, a purple robe upon his back so it would adhere to the blood. And then they mocked him as a supposed king. And then they ripped off the purple robe just to inflict the pain. These Roman soldiers, this was just another day. This was just another crucifixion. They were professional killers. That's what they did. There's... Their sadistic pleasure was to allow men to die slowly. And this Jesus was just another one of those victims. And now it was time to complete the crucifixion for them to place the beam across his own shoulders and allow him to carry his very instrument of death to his death. Now the scene that I just described to you is the scene that was so vivid in the mind of Jesus five days before it actually happened. You see, the path, the road of redemption was not an accident. It wasn't something that was blind to Jesus. It wasn't like something that he stumbled upon as he went into Jerusalem. As he walked in that day to Jerusalem, when everybody would be saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest, he knew what the outcome would be. He knew in his mind he was sovereign, and he and the Father, before eternity passed, had planned it out. All the way from the time of Genesis, when, Je when God prophesied that it would be through the woman's seed that redemption would come. The path of redemption is going to be completed, and it would be done by Christ, and it would be done this week. You see, 
the, the beginning of it was coming into the city. Three years had passed in Jesus' ministry, and he now had to enter into Jerusalem. He had been telling his disciples, I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit, spit upon. I am going to do that. And three times he told his disciples, but they didn't understand. But now finally, on a strategically timed of the year, he went in at Passover. You see, the week of Passover was a huge celebration for the Jewish nation. The, the crowds in Jerusalem tripled in size. People came from all over the place to celebrate this Passover. It was a Passover week. And this is at the very beginning of this Passover week that Jesus is entering into the city. Why then? Why Passover? It's because he not only would celebrate Passover as a Jew, but he would fulfill Passover as the Messiah. Some of you are saying, well, well refresh my memory on this whole Passover thing. What is that all about? Well, do you remember back in the Old Testament when the, the people of Israel were under slavery for over 400 years and they cried out to God and God sent a deliverer, Moses, and Moses would be an instrument of God to bring about the people out of slavery. Of course, God did it himself. He's the one that brought the 10 plagues upon on, on Egypt. And the final plague was the death angel that went through and was going to kill the firstborn son of every Egyptian and anybody that did not have blood over the doorpost of their house. And so after this, God allowed them to be released. See, God had given very specific instructions to the people of Israel back at that time. Do you remember? He said, this is what I want you to do. In order for your sons not to die, I want you to kill a lamb, a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb. And I want you to take his blood and I want you to paint it over the doorpost of your house. And when the angel of death passes by, you will be saved through the blood. You see, we always go from death to life through the blood. And this is what he told the people of Israel. He says, I want you to roast the meat. I want you to eat it with bitter herbs. I want you to eat it with unleavened bread. And I want you to do it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your tunic tucked in. I want you to do it with staff in hand and sandals on your feet because I am God and I will deliver you. See, this was the time of Passover. This is what the Jews longed to celebrate and remember what God had done for them. And now Jesus would fulfill it. He would go to the cross. And now it would be once for all, the perfect Lamb of God, as John said in John chapter 1, would shed his blood. And it would only be by his blood being painted over the doorpost of our life that we would, uh, by our own will, enter in and accept what God has done for us. And it would be only, this would be the only means by which we would pass from death into life. This is what Jesus came to do. This was the road of redemption that Jesus was bringing about. But he was alone. He was all alone. The disciples... They're going into Jerusalem thinking that Jesus is now going to overthrow the Roman government. He is going to lead a revolution. That's what they think. Jesus' own family have still rejected him. His mother knows that something special is going to happen, but she doesn't know when. She doesn't know where. 
So Jesus is alone in this to fulfill this plan of redemption. Jesus alone knows what is going on. And as we come to Mark chapter 11, what, Jesus, what we're going to see is this progress of going from Sunday to Friday, from, from Sunday, his triumphal entry, to Friday when he would be crucified. We're going to be studying that over the next few weeks. Let's turn to Mark chapter 11. Take a look at verse, the first 11 verses. Now when the, they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say that the Lord has need of it and will send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And someone some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches and they, that they had cut from the trees of the field. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, as Jesus was about two miles away from Jerusalem, he was resting at Bethany. So he was probably at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. They're good, his good friends. And he gives his instruction to the disciples of what they were to do. Now, notice the extreme details, uh, the meticulous details that Jesus gives. He says, I want you to go out. You're going to immediately find this colt unbroken colt and I want you to bring it to me and if someone says something to you you just tell them that I have need of it and I will return it and then Mark records this the details of the disciples doing that I think he does it because again he's writing a Roman audience who loved to see the powerful and here they see the sovereignty of Jesus I don't think this was prearranged because of the details that are given here he shows the sovereignty of Jesus and in verse, seven, in verse 7, the disciples then take, out their, take off their outer cloak and they make a, a, a saddle for Jesus, so to speak. And Jesus sits upon the donkey and he starts down this road. Now, I've been in Jerusalem. You start on the Mount of Olives. You go down through the Garden of Gethsemane and then you arise to the temple that is up on, or the city that is on the hill where the temple was. It was, a mirac it was an incredible sight. And this is what the disciples were doing. Now, I have to think that when the disciples were preparing this, something came to their mind. Zechariah 9. Oh, my goodness. Zechariah 9 is coming true. And this is what they would have known as Jews, the prophecy given by Zechariah. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. 
The entire reason that the disciples are so excited about this is because they get to help usher in the king. There were others, according to the book of John, that had seen the miraculous raising of Lazarus that were there as well. And they're there taking leaves off the tree or branches off the tree and putting their own cloak down. Now, I believe that they did that because he, they thought he was a king. There's examples in the Old Testament of people doing just that for a king. And so here we have it. They think Jesus is the king, and he is coming in, and he is riding victoriously on the donkey. Now, he certainly was a king, but it wasn't in the way that the disciples were thinking. It wasn't that way at all. See, they were thinking that he was coming to bring a political kingdom, that, they would decide, that, that he would defeat them defeat the Romans. And so these disciples were all over this. Now it's interesting that the, the psalm that they sing is from Psalm 118. During the time of Passover, it was the tradition of all the Jews to cite the Psalms of Ascent, which is Psalm 113 through 118. All those Psalms of Ascent were written about the victory that God had in Egypt and how there would be someday a future deliverer. And in Psalm 18, at the very end of it, it talks about the Messiah who would come and he would be a victorious king and he would come into the city. It's interesting that that is the Psalm that they are quoting at this time. Let me read a little bit more of Psalm 18 so that you can see what they were quoting. Open the gates of righteousness that I might enter in through them and give thanks to the Lord. This, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. This is all about the future Messiah. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Talking about Christ. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Whenever we sing that, it's always talking about the coming of the Messiah. And then it says, O Lord, save us. There's the word. The word there is Hosanna, meaning, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. See, this last portion of Psalm 18, this Psalm of Ascent, is what the disciples are chanting. Some are in front, some are in back. Hosanna, Hosanna, meaning that this was a prayer. This was a praise. This was the Lord come and save us, we pray. See, when the disciples or all the Jews actually prayed this at the time of Passover, their hope really was that there would be a Messiah that would come. They were sick and tired of being under the, the scrutiny and the oppression of the Romans. And so their minds automatically go back to a redeemer and how God saved them out of bondage. And their prayer is, save us out of this bondage. Save it out of this, uh, out of this tyranny that we are under. And that was their hope. But I believe on this Passover, these Jews wouldn't even, even be on hope. They thought, is it reality? 
Is it possible? Is it possible that this one that's riding in on a donkey is the Messiah? Is he the one who's fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9? Is this the one? Could he be the one? Little did they realize he wasn't going to overthrow the Roman government. He was going to do something much more profound than they could ever ask or think. Isn't that the way God works? We think, oh, God, just do this little thing. And God says, no, no, no. I want to do something much greater in your life. Much greater in your life. In this case, he would not overthrow the Romans. He would overthrow and defeat Satan, sin, and death. That was his plan. That was his plan of redemption. Now, notice that Jesus enters into the city and he goes into the temple. The passage tells us that he just did something that we might think is strange. He just went in and looked around. Surveyed what was going on. And then he left. Now, for you and I, we'd say, well, that uh, that does seem a little strange. I think there was something more to it. I believe that he was fulfilling prophecy again. Malachi chapter 3 makes a prediction, and I believe this was a partial uh, uh, fulfillment of this prediction. This is what Matthew or Malachi 3 says. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before you. That's talking about John the Baptist. That's what he did. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Who you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? And then it goes on in the passage and says, For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. See, when Jesus surveys the temple, I believe he was looking at how it was being used. Was it being used by God's design where people were worshiping? Was it by God's design that people were hearing about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that in a sense evangelism was taking place? I believe he walked away from that temple grieved, deeply grieved, and we'll see this in his actions the next day. Jesus would come back the next day with a refiner's fire, with a launderer's soap as he cleanses the temple. Sunday's done. Now we move to Monday's cleansing, house cleansing. Now as we proceed in the passage, please note that everything that happens is by design. We're going to have like this little story about figs here, and we're going to, you probably didn't expect to study figology today at church, but you're going to study figology because there's something very significant about what Jesus says here, but it all has to do, it all fits in together. Take a look at verse 12. On the following day, being Monday, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Stop right there. Now, here's Jesus. It's morning time. He, I don't know if he had his cup of java. I don't know if he had his, you know, his morning breakfast, but evidently he was still hungry. 
And so as he's making his way to Jerusalem, which was a two-mile jog, so as he's making it in with his disciples, he sees a fig tree, and he goes over and inspects the leaves, and then he brings about a pretty harsh curse to it by saying, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. You almost get the feeling that there's something more to this than a fruitless tree. There's something more to it. Now, the funny thing is that Mark says it wasn't the time for figs. You see, here's where figology comes in. The figs wouldn't be due, wouldn't be ripe until the end of May or the beginning of June. Passover took place at the beginning of April. Now, here's what you would have had. The blossoms would have been there. There would have been little buds. And the peasants would often go up and they would take the buds because they were edible. But if the fig tree was filled with buds, then you knew that there would be a great harvest of figs. And as Jesus found this tree that had no buds whatsoever, he knew that it would be fruitless. And I believe in his mind and his heart immediately went to the people of Israel who were just like this tree. How many times did Jesus teach and he says, hey, it's like this. It's like the farmer or it's like the guy, the person that's bringing in the wheat and it's the, the chaff and he's bringing illustrations from agriculture into our life. And I believe this is what he is doing and he'll make that clear on Tuesday when he teaches on this subject. And so what Jesus is doing is he makes a denouncement that is symbolic of what the Jewish nation was all about he knew that they were fruitless he had just come the night before from the temple he saw it with his own eyes he was going to the temple to make a cleansing he is making a point about the jewish nation clearly the jewish people were fruitless due to their disobedience can i just say this god's expectation on his people especially for us as Christ followers, is that we will always be fruitful. God has an expectation that this church, Mission View Church, will be fruitful for God. He has that expectation with each and every individual member. And if you have no way in which that fruit is being seen in your life, you have to ask yourself, why is that? We move on in the passage. Look at what happens next in verse 15. And then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple and was teaching them and said to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they, the disciples and Jesus, went out from the city. So here's what's happening. 
Jesus comes in, and the first place he goes to is where any Jew or any Gentile that went to the temple to do business or to worship would go, and that was the court of the Gentiles. This is where the men and the women Jews would be allowed to go, and the men and women Gentiles would be allowed to go there as well. Now, what's so grievous to Jesus is that it's not fulfilling its original purpose. You see, if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 8, 41 to 43, when the temple was being dedicated, God said, this is the purpose of the court of the Gentiles. I want it to be a place where foreigners can come and they can hear about the great name of our God. They can hear about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when they hear of his mighty deeds, his mighty hand, and how it has worked, then in doing so, they would call out for God and ask, Ask that God to be their God. So really the purpose of the court of the Gentiles was evangelism. The purpose of it was to draw in those that were seeking after God. But that's not what Jesus found. He found money changers. He saw people selling animals. He saw people profiteering. He saw extortion taking place. Now, it's common that those that were coming far away, that they wouldn't bring the animals for sacrifice themselves. It was common for them to have to, to, to buy them in Jerusalem. It was also common for them to go to a money changers. There's three types of currency that day. There was a Roman currency. There was a Greek currency. There was a Jewish coin. And in order for them to get the money for a Jewish tax, to pay the temple tax, in order for them to have the Jewish currency to buy the animal, they needed to be able to exchange their money. But extortion had taken place. And Jesus sees this. And instead of this being outside of the temple where it should have been, it had moved right into the court of the Gentiles. After all, the Jews didn't need it to evangelize the Gentiles. Truth be known, they hated the Gentiles. See, had the court of the Gentiles not lost its purpose, they wouldn't have been selling there. And so what does Jesus do? He starts overturning the table. He comes and does a house cleansing. The refiner's fire is in, at work. Now, notice that Jesus isn't like this crazy, mad man with a vendetta. No, he uses his anger actually to teach. It says that he taught them. Now, I believe he was teaching very forcefully. If someone's overturning, if I come in one day and I'm throwing all the instruments all over the place and I say, okay, now I got a lesson I want you to learn. I think at that point, you're going to say, okay, I really want to hear what he has to say. Now, I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is, and this is what Jesus says. He says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. See, what Jesus was doing was quoting Isaiah 56, verse 6 and 7. You should read that sometime. And what it's showing here is God's heart for the nation. You see, Throughout the Old Testament, God has always had a heart for the nations. Even when the nation of Israel was being developed in Genesis chapter 12, when God had called Abraham the father of the Jewish nation, when he called them, he says, here, Abraham, here's the deal. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. They're, they're going to be as numerous as the stars. 
But here's the deal. I am going to work through you because through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God has always had the nations on his heart throughout the Old Testament. And Isaiah 56, Jesus is just reiterating what God had specifically said about the temple, that it was to be used to reach out to the nations. If you read Isaiah 56 in its context, you will find that God's plan was for his people to be a light to the nations so that foreigners would be drawn to God and thus serve him and love him and worship him. Guys, that's why we reach out. Because we want others. We want every one of these seats filled up. Not because we're building a name for ourselves. Because we got a God that is worthy of those individuals, all of us together, serving him, loving him, worshiping him. Isn't that what it's about? Whatever we do here on Sunday morning, it's not about us. It's about a holy God. It's about drawing attention to him and what in worshiping him. That's what the church is here for. And this is what he is trying to ingrain within the heart of his people. But here's the problem. The Jews should have had this love. And this love should have compelled them to reach out to a Gentile people. But they had lost this vision. They had lost it altogether. They had misplaced their priorities. They had kept the Gentiles at an arm's distance because they hated the Gentiles. The fact is, it, there was no way possible that a Gentile could be led to God based on the behavior of the Jews. Why? Because they had vision drift. They didn't love God. They didn't love others. And as a result, they had forgotten their mission altogether. Now, my friends, there's an application here for the church. Because there are many churches that have forgotten their vision altogether. They have forgotten to love God with all their heart and to carry out the passion of God to reach out to those that are far from God. May that never be. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Now notice that this event gets the attention of the religious leaders. Now riding into town on a donkey, that didn't do it. But when you start overturning tables and ruining business, now that gets the religious leaders' attention. Why? Because they were a part of the corruption. They were in on it. So what happens when you shine a bridal light in, under a big rock? you see the cockroaches starting to scurry about. And the cockroaches are scurrying about in closed-door meetings, and they're saying, we got to get rid of this guy. He's so popular. I mean, we got to find a way to silence him permanently. And so they set in motion the plan for crucifixion. What they plan for destruction, Jesus planned for redemption. Now we come to Tuesday. Tuesday's teaching, and we're going to stop with this last teaching that he gives in verse 20 through 26. 
please understand that Tuesday is actually a pretty long day. We'll have to come back to this after Christmas because all of chapter 12 and all of chapter 13 is Tuesday's teaching. And so we'll come after Christmas next week. We're going to cover a Christmas passage and we'll look back at, at more of what Jesus is teaching. But what's interesting is that on this day of teaching, he chooses to teach his disciples probably the most important lesson he could teach. And that was a lesson on faith. Take a look at verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the tree that you cursed is withered. The disciples were fascinated that within a 24-hour period, the tree is absolutely gone. They had never seen anything like that. But I also have to think that they, being Jews, knew so many prophecies in the Old Testament where God would bring judgment and he would always affect their crops. The, the vine would wither. They knew that. This was a sign of judgment. They couldn't understand it completely, but they're tucking it into their mind and their heart. But then Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach them about faith. Notice what he says to them next. And Jesus answered them. He says, have faith in God. Now what's interesting is the verb tense here is one of continuous action. He says, I want you to continue to have a constant trust in God. He knew that their tendency, their propensity would be for that of doubt, of that of discouragement, of not proceeding in faith. He knew that. And so he says very boldly, you are to continue on and on and on. And when you feel like giving up, on and on and on in your faith. I want you to remember that, disciples. And then he says this, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown in the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Jesus uses hyperbole here. He's using an extreme use of the language to say, hey, listen, if you just believe in the power of God, then mountains can be moved. See, the focus wasn't on me and my power. The focus really was on God's power. And that we are trusting in that power. You as disciples, believe in the omnipotence of God. Believe in his power because he can move any situation. Anything that is monumental in your life, he can take that mountain and throw it into the ocean. God and his power can do that. But then he brings it on a personal level and says, don't only believe in his power, but believe in his unfailing goodness in your life. Big God, powerful God who works in your life. Believe that he will work on your behalf. And then he puts it down into very practical terms. He says this, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, whatever you ask, Believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, some people have taken this out of context and have laid a, a groundwork for name it and claim it, that God wants to just give you anything and everything. No, no, no. Understand it in the context. We have a big God who is so powerful. And our job is to believe in that God and don't give up. Be persistent in believing in that God who moves mountains. 
and believe that he wants to work on your life on an intimate level and we can come to him like a little child would come to their father or their mother and we can believe with the kind of confidence that a little child has in their mom and mom and dad that it will happen now please understand the parameters for this when my kids were small if they came to me at 10 years of age and says mommy daddy I want to drive the car. Keys, please. I would be crazy to give them the keys. I'm not going to do that. See, God is always going to answer our prayers in light of what is best for us. The parameters for prayer, I believe that Jesus teaches here and teaches in other places, is that he's, first of all, is it God's will? God's will is always his word. Is it within the boundaries of his word? I've heard of individuals praying to God, saying, God, would you please bless the affair that I'm in? Or God, please bless this relationship even though they're living together. Please understand, whenever you're outside of God's will, God's not going to bless that. He never blesses that. But he does bless his word because his word is always meant to do two things for you. Provide for you, and it's always meant to protect you. And when we step outside of that, we then face the opposite. We become depleted and we become vulnerable. There are some people here that are depleted and vulnerable, but God says, no, trust me. Come under my umbrella. Trust my authority. Believe in me as your father, and I will answer you. The other parameter to prayer is simply knowing that God has the big picture. I don't see the road ahead of me. I can't. Sometimes I wish I could. But God does. And so we need to keep our eyes on the one who has a divine perspective. I've heard of individuals that during their dating years, their moaning and groaning years, where they just long to have someone to be married to. They're like, oh, Lord, I think she's the one. I think he's the one. He's so handsome. He's everything. And Lord, let me marry this man or this woman. And if God would have answered that prayer, you would be in an insane asylum right now. You know you would have. Think back to some of those dates. Psycho. There was something wrong there. God knows the right answer to our prayers. But also notice that Jesus interweaves forgiveness towards others in this, in verse 25. And he says, and whenever you stand, pray and forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. See, if we can't forgive those that have offended us after we have received so much forgiveness from God, then it means that we're living a pretty self-absorbed life. And what he's saying is when we are self-absorbed, we will forfeit the positive answers to prayer. And that's true. So Mark 11, we have the explanation. We'll come back to the teachings of Jesus in the, in the coming days. But what do we do with it now? Here's three questions I want to ask you. Three questions to apply. And it goes through the passage. First, in his triumphal entry, are you, is Jesus your Hosanna? Is he your salvation? My friends, I realize that there are some people here that you've been investigating who Jesus Christ is, and that's an awesome thing. 
but there comes a point where you have to realize that just sitting here doesn't do it. It doesn't transfer you from darkness to light. It doesn't make you uh, an enemy to a friend of God. It doesn't do it just by being here. There has to be a decision. You see, God had created you right from the beginning to have relationship with him. And as Brian said earlier, there was a problem. There was a separation that took place between you and God because of our self-centeredness, because of our sin. We did what we wanted. And you know that we all are in that place. We've done that. But what Jesus did is he said, I can't stand this separation. I'm going to do something. I will die on a cross and it will be through my blood that you can enter into life. You can go from death to life, but it's your choice. You have to choose it. I can't choose it for you. You have to choose it. And so Jesus makes that available so that we can enter into a restored relationship with the living God and I can worship God and I can come to him knowing that my sins are forgiveness. The question is today is have you, is Jesus your Hosanna? Is he your salvation? Have you made that decision? The other two questions I have really are irrelevant if you can't say yes, I would encourage you simply to lift your heart before God and say, God, I believe. I ask that you forgive me. I want you as my salvation. Save my soul. Now the second application question has to do with those that are Christ's followers. Here's the question. Are we fulfilling the heart of God to be a light to the nations or have we misplaced our priorities? See, my friends, as Christ followers who have, have experienced this transformation, there is an expectation on God for fruitfulness. God always wants fruit from those that are Christ followers. He doesn't want us just to sit. He doesn't want us just to take a back seat. He doesn't want our spiritual gifts to lie dormant and not used at all. And if you can't, if you can, if you're here today and you say, I have no idea what my spiritual gift is, I'm not doing anything for God, please know that that's not the heart of God and you have some decisions to make. God wants fruit in your life. And one of the things that God wants of every single one of us is because he has touched our hearts and because we have learned to love God, he wants us to have his same heartbeat inside of us. And his heartbeat is that for God to love the world that whoever believes will have eternal life. What God's heartbeat is that we would go and make disciples of nation. God wants us to be an ongoing, going type of person. 24-7, we are the church in the world that we live in. Do we have that perspective? We ask these questions. Am I spending time praying for those that are far from God? Am I close enough to those that are lost that they can trust me, that I can share my grace story? Because I'll tell you, it's easy to get away from this mission. So I don't, what I don't want to happen, I want Jesus to return and find us at Mission View doing the wrong things. Because we can easily fill our life with a lot of good things and miss the most important. I don't want that to happen. And I'll be honest with you. 
There's times that I would just rather on my week just spend it with you, with believers, doing Bible studies. Man, I love Bible studies. I love studying the Word of God. I love doing, uh, you know, spending time with believers, and that's important. That's an important element. But I, sometimes it's easy for me to forget about those that are far from God. When I do that, I forget the mission of God. Here's the last question. Are you demonstrating faith on a tenacious level? I got to tell you, faith is fickle for me. I will be honest with you. I sometimes feel like, you remember when uh, Brian taught on the guy, the father in Mark chapter 9 who brought his son and child to the, to the disciples and they couldn't heal him and he brings him to Jesus and the man says, do you believe? And he says, yes, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Sometimes I feel like that. That's me. That's Steve Marshall. Anybody else like that? Okay, help me in my unbelief. And here's what I know of God. I know in my heart that God wants to reach my family members. I know God will reach those that are within my core, my circle of responsibility. I know God will miraculously work in each of your life as I pray for you as your pastor. And I know God will grow this church. But I would be lying if I didn't say I didn't go through warfare and doubt and discouragement along with it. I do that. But here's my hope. You often encourage me. I think we should be encouraging to one another in the areas of our doubts. What's your doubt? Let's, as a body, realize that God wants something, to do something special if we will simply believe. I'm going to close this in prayer, and I'm going to pray for our offering at this time as well. But in this closing of prayer, if there are some that you just feel far from God, would you just pray in your heart with me? Lord, I pray, Father, for everybody that is sitting here today. I pray, Father, that those that might be far from you would say simply, God, I, I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I want to follow after you with all of my heart. And Lord, I want to offer my life to you. Lord, I pray for the person that is a Christ follower that is not fruitful, that they would have a heart to serve after you, to, to serve you. Lord, may they say in their hearts, Lord, take everything that I have, what little it is, and would you use it for your glory? And for the person that is lacking faith, may they simply say in their heart, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Lord, we pray, Father, for this offering. We pray that it would be honoring to you. We pray that we would be a people that would be giving so sacrificially. I pray for the person that doesn't understand at this point how important it is not to give to me, not to give to a person, but to give to you and to your work. I pray, Father, for them that they would understand what a joy it is, what a privilege they may be missing out on. Lord, I pray for other ministries that are striving for the gospel locally. We pray for Grace Bible Church and the new pastor, Gary Duckett. I pray, God, that your blessing would be on him as he proclaims the gospel. We pray for 
uh, the partner church in, in Chicago that we pray for, the line. We pray, Father, that you would bless Pastor Aaron Youngren. Pray that you would help them to have a vision of love. I pray that they would reach out to friends, that they would know you. So, Lord, would you do that work in their life? We love you. In Christ's name.